five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. Well, let's start with something fun from Davich. Don't get vaccinated. Here's the sign. Don't get vaccinated on this truck. And you think, what? Who would be putting that on a truck? Well, it's Wilmore Funeral Home. And, uh, you know, there was a famous funeral home in Washington, D.C. This was in Charlotte, North Carolina, I think, in Washington, D.C. that said 10% discount if you walk in. Uh, Some funeral homes have more sense of humor than others, but this was not from a funeral home. This was from Oakley Boone, or I mean Boone Oakley. That upside down thing, it freaks me out. (laughs) I'm dyslexic, and most things look upside down to me. And when you see one that actually is, it just completely gets you goofy. And, uh, oops, now, oh, now I don't want that. Restream is bugging me because I told them about the CAPTCHA yesterday. If you were with me yesterday, you saw that. Okay, so Sears to shut last store in home state of Illinois. Okay, so on November 14th, it's going to close its last store. And, you know, that really is sad when you close your store right before the Thanksgiving boom. You'd think they could have a better liquidator in charge of this than they do. Uh, But, you know, they don't get me started on Sears and their ability to understand anything. Uh, Sears Holding, which also owned Kmart. Yeah, what happened was Kmart filed bankruptcy and then bought Sears. But somewhere along the way, in 1993, this is what happened. And I would say this started the tremendous downhill slide. This is a a headline from the New York Times, August 26, 1993. Sears eliminating its catalogs and 50,000 jobs. I got a couple of calls from friends that day saying, can you believe it? I said, I absolutely believe it. Do you know why it happened? And they're like, no. You know, it was a $5 billion company they just pulled the plug on. $5 billion. That's a pretty good-sized catalog. And 1993 was what some of us old guys would consider the golden age of catalogs. Okay? There was no internet. Not for a couple of years yet, and not really get going. There was no Google, really, until 2000, and it didn't get measured until 2009. Digital advertising wasn't really a measurable advertising thing. So anyway, here's what happened. I'll give you the story. But first, we'll have some memorabilia. Here's people working on the Sears catalog. Now Restream's going to bug me, and I don't think I can get rid of it. I don't know how to get rid of it. I guess I can close this right now. I don't think it's helping me any. I'm just watching it. We'll close it. Um, Who knows? I probably just stopped the stream. Let's see. Restream has been a pain in the neck lately. Beyond words. That's an understatement. Let's see if it's still restreaming. That's the question. There we are. Well, there's something restreaming, but it didn't update the titles. And that's me, all right. So I guess it's working. It's terrible. They keep fiddling with their code. Anyway, so here's Bailey and Massingale, which apparently became the first store or something. But 
it was really Sears and Roebuck. And here's a dress, woman's dress for $1.49. Here's a sewing machine. Can't read the price. Seed department. Um, here's a car you could buy from the Sears, Sears Model L. Look at that. Wow. Fall of 1907. Um, a six-month course in bookkeeping. Here's a house you could buy for $1,569. And here's an actual picture of one of the Sears houses. Oops, it didn't come through. But there was a, uh, there's a whole documentary on Sears houses that people actually went and bought, built them. Okay, here's one of their bigger stores uh, in El Paso, Texas in 1940. Look at the cars still in 1940. It's amazing. And here's the catalog and the wish book. That's what I grew up on. That's how I got started in direct mail. We had a driveway that was at least a half a mile long, and our mailbox was at the very end of it, a gravel driveway. Or it was a road, I guess. It wasn't really our driveway. It was Mariner Drive. And when the catalogs came, man, that was, that was it, man. We just loved looking at all the catalogs. Look at that. Wow. And then we would circle stuff we liked and tell our parents and send the, the letter to Santa. Anyway, so what happened in the Sears catalog? Well, what happened was that they they were the Sears catalog was giving 10 percent of its revenue to, back to the stores. They would give that they would allocate it based on where the customer purchased. And uh, in our case, we had to go to the store to pick up our order um, because we didn't have UPS in those days. And so we would drive into Waukesha and there was no freeway and, you know, buy other stuff, too. So it was a win-win for the stores. But gradually they got better at better at shipping the stuff. And but but in order to keep the stores happy, they would they gave 10 percent. So that was five hundred million dollars a year back to the stores. Just write them a check based on the number of customers that purchased in their in their trading area. However, that was defined. Well, the accountants got in there one day and they said, gee, this catalog isn't really making money. It's like a break even or worse. We're losing a little bit of money. Now, those of you who've ever done any kind of segmentation know that we could have taken a $5 billion company and, and maybe mailed a few less catalogs and cut the overhead a little bit and taken it back to maybe $4 billion and made tons of money, right? But the stores were like, no, keep mailing, mail more, mail more. We love these checks. Because, you know, the stores are running at about break even. And, and the check from the, you know, if, if a check got a, 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 if a, if a store got a check for a couple of million bucks, that was their profit for the year. So what they had done is they moved the profit out of the catalog, which was profitable, and into the stores, which weren't that profitable. Okay. Um, and the stores were driving the circulation decisions. So the accountant said, this catalog isn't even making any money. All we need is stores. And they pulled the plug, 50,000 jobs. And it was never the same. It was never the same. 1993. My goodness. What a, what a sad day in direct marketing history. Anyway... Let's go over to this one, Direct Marketing for the Consumer, Direct-to-Consumer Brand. This is by Paul Talbot, but it's really an interview with Polly Wong, who's, um, who's one, of the, one of the principals at Bellardi Wong. And uh, so what makes Direct-to-Consumer different? She said, well, um, 
A lot of the catalogs are lifestyle brands. They tend to target more affluent consumers with higher price points and less brand awareness. Now, I was a little nervous about that because it was like we were talking about brand awareness just yesterday in Land's End. And um, I think there is less than there used to be. But she meant brands that are that consumers are less aware of. Uh, they're more like under-the-radar brands because they're not on TV and they're not in the big retail stores. The catalog solves all these challenges by providing more real estate to show the brand's story and brand value. So she is hearkening back to the story I told you yesterday. Catalogs are now, well, they have always been, very cost-effective compared to the skyrocketing costs of digital marketing. And she had an excellent article on that a couple of weeks ago about how digital marketing has increased prices 250% since the first of the year, something like that, so almost triple. Um, does the consumer care if they're buying from a direct-to-consumer? Well, many direct-to-consumers have um, mission statements about inclusivity and sustainability, and um, I think the biggest thing is people like to look for fresh brands with fresh products. As we, as we noted yesterday with the robots story, People like surprises. Robots like sameness. They like predictability and order. <laughs> but humans like surprises and exploration. We're created for adventure. Uh, so anyway, what do you consider the most fascinating aspect of direct consumer-to-consumer? Measurability. And of course, you know, I have a personal vendetta against this word measurability because it's not the measurability of direct mail. It's the measurement. We know for sure. Not that we could measure or we could have allocation if only our AI would work. No, we have hard-coded measurement. Okay, Most retailers capture 60% or less of the transactions at the name and address level. Right, you walk in, you buy something, and you walk out. For direct-to-consumer brands, we capture 100% of their e-commerce transactions at the name and address level. Why? Because we mail to the store, or we mail to the household, they interact at the household, and they ship to the household. Or they ship to their office, but whatever they ship to, you know, we're mailing and shipping and we can track it right back to the mailing. 100%. Not 100%, but it's pretty good. Um, and we get an address because they got to ship it to somewhere. So the catalogers are building their customer file, which is a true financial asset. Yes, you basically, it's it's a valuation independent of, uh, not, well, it's correlated with revenue and profits, but. It's basically, yeah, there's a certain value per name that you've generated as a customer. So we also capture 100% of the transactions from mail, which is targeted at the name and address level. Right. So we get attribution, just like I've been telling you. Direct mail can easily be matched back to the transactions. You know, I think it's funny when I read articles and they say, you know, we didn't realize that direct mail could be tracked because all we use is at Google Analytics. That's right. Yeah, I know. Print also has 100% viewability. Now, I didn't know what that viewability, you know, I've seen people say 100% open rate, which I thought she was saying there. I call it 100% engagement, but Polly and I are on the same page here because the consumer has to touch it to recycle it. Right. Not to mention that the print channel does not rely on third-party tracking. So what are the what are what do you see? How do the how are the time honored, honored fundamentals? Check out check out um, Claude Hopkins uh, scientific advertising on scientificadvertising.com. But how are the fundamentals evolving? 
Well, targeting and measurement. See, there she gets to measurement. Yay, yay for Polly. She switched over from measurability to measurement. Measurement is stronger than ever before. Right, let's ditch the word measurable. Uh, aspirational photography, incredible storytelling, uh, less item density. We were talking about square inch analysis yesterday, less square inches. We don't see catalogs as big as we used to because a lot of it's driving traffic to the massively funded website. So that gets the budget. But if you do the holdout tests, as I've been telling you, you can get that budget back. The consumer has to pull it out. Oh, what do you mean by 100% open rate? That's what she said. She did say open rate here. More brands are looking toward direct mail since it has 100% open rate. And again, I would say engagement. What do you mean by that? The consumer has to pull it out of their mailbox and then touch it again to trash it or order from it or recycle it. But no matter what they do with it, it's a higher level mental engagement. Your brain has 10 times more touch sensors than sight. So no matter what, even if they throw it in the trash, we know they engage with it. And because we know they engage with it, we know they saw the ad, even if they didn't buy. And so that gives us the measured, the uh, the the machine language labeled data set of buyers and non-buyers. And that's missing in all other advertising. We can't tell who saw it, registered, and didn't buy. We don't have that in any other advertising medium. Okay, so the resurgence in direct marketing is in large part due to marketers looking to reduce risk and dependency on Google, Facebook, and to create diversity in their marketing mix. Yeah, um, Mike Gunderson says they're getting calls now saying we just can't get digital to scale anymore. We put more and more and more money and we don't get any more result. And that might be because Google doesn't really have all the inventory or Facebook. They're not really showing it to people. You can't tell if they show it to anybody or not. You can tell the orders come in, but you can't tell what they're doing. And that is one of the fun parts about the, about the walled garden that they play in. So... Um, also, she ends with, when you reach consumers across multiple channels, you improve your response rates. But don't let, don't let the digital guys do the attribution or you will lose budget. You got to have a holdout test. You got to prove that when the mail stops, the money stops. And when you prove that, the CFO will pour money on you. Have a great day. Oh, one more thing. Obviously, let's go back to the, let's go back to the pretty picture. Down below. Uh, the Irish pub said, the owner said, he's good, he's reserved the back room for us. So even though we have 14 or 15 people, big brands, we're putting out another email in case you missed it to make it convenient for you to register. We've got some big brands coming. we got some big printers coming. I mean, amazing. Epsilon, Donnelly, Jockey, a uh, bunch of great companies, plus Grant Johnson and Ron Davis, uh, founders of two direct mail agencies. Have a great day. Get over to WDMA.org and register. Share. I think share matters on LinkedIn. I don't see many people sharing. You got to share. People need to hear this, especially those digital marketers that you hang around with. They're going to not have beer money soon, so you got to get them over to direct mail. Bye-bye. You won't hear that on any other channel, I don't think. I got to let this play out so you can be sure to hear it.